When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sorry, in the times when I'm not talking, I'm just kind of like breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Intentionally just trying to like, okay, I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. I'm not sick. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. <laughs> and then you realize you haven't taken a breath in 10 seconds and you have to get intentional about that. <laughs> That's the worst. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. This week you can call me Senior Selesnia. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. And you can call me Monsieur Golgari. What? You're taking Golgari? How dare you? I'm supposed to be the necromancer. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And, here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Ravnica and its place in EDH. We're returning right. to returning to return to Ravnica. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. In honor of the upcoming Guilds of Ravnica block, also known as Return to Return to Ravnica, we're going to take a look at the data of Ravnica sets past. You guys excited? I am. Yeah. Yeah, Ravnica, it's got a pretty dear place in all of our hearts, I think. Ravnica, it isn't the set that I first started with, but it is the set that brought me back. I had played for a short time around Darksteel or so, and the cards didn't quite speak to me, but when Ravnica came out, that really got my attention. I saw the cards Watchwolf and Lightning Helix, and I was just like, whoa, gotta do this. I, I have a lot of affection for Ravnica, so it's going to be fun to go look at some of the data that comes from all of those sets. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It was also my return to magic as well, so um, even though my heart was broken today by the hint of one of my favorite characters dying, I'm still excited for the set and looking forward to looking back. I assume you're referring... Uh you're, you're referencing Esperia, is that right? I am indeed. Is Esperia now a was Esperia? Tune in and find out. <laughs> right, exactly. Matt, how about you? Ravnica, yay, nay? Um, I wasn't playing during the original Ravnica. Um, I got back into the game right at the tail end of Return to Ravnica. So, like, all the nostalgia wasn't there, but a lot of my buddies, like, they were talking about the set. They're like, man, this." I, I look at these cards and, like, this is how you remind me of what it was like playing back in Ravnica. So I know a lot of people are, are very excited about it. I, I think I missed it. I came in just a little too late um, or came back in, I should say, 
uh, to really get excited about Ravnica, it's fine. But I know that it gave us a lot of really fun cards. So, yeah. Awesome. Before we get started, though, I have a kind of fun story that I've been waiting to tell. And I figure I'm just going to pull the trigger and tell it now. Because, well, this doesn't have anything to do with Ravnica. It is one of my favorite personal magic playing stories. And, Dana, I'm going to prove to you why I deserve to have the Golgari title, because I'm the Mr. Necromancer myself, and this story involves a deck full of necromancy. Do you guys know the modern deck Living End? 100%. Yes. Yeah. Naturally, I mean, I'm an EDH guy at heart, but if I'm ever going to play anything in any other format like modern, of course I'm going to play something that involves graveyards. So I was playing a Living End deck, which uses Cascade to just automatically flip into the card Living End, which switches all creatures in play with all creatures in graveyards. One of the ways that you get a whole bunch of creatures in your graveyard is to cycle them. And a lot of the cards that, you know, we would use in the Living End deck are things like Monstrous Caribid. It's a 5-mana 4-4 that has to attack every turn if able, and it can cycle for either a black or a red mana. Pretty simple, so you just cycle, 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 and then automatically cascade into Living End, get a bunch of kind of dirtily but nevertheless powerful creatures onto a completely clear board, and attack your opponent for the win. Pretty straightforward, but I was playing that against my friend Chris, who was playing Mono Blue Tron, which I'm not sure if you guys know that deck, but it involves a Mind Slaver lock. Constantly taking your opponent's turn, then putting the Mind Slaver back on top of your library with Academy Ruins, then doing it again, and again, and again, until you find your own way to mill them out or something like that. Doesn't matter because you get to play Magic, but they don't. So I was in my Living End deck against his deck, and he actually got a Mind Slaver lock on me. But, what... He didn't seem to realize was that I had gotten a couple of monstrous carabids in play, which have to attack every turn if able. So even though he was taking control of literally all of my turns, he had to attack himself and he'd run out of removal spells and couldn't draw anymore. So it was the best game of stop hitting yourself I think I've ever played. Nice. I wouldn't have thought of that with the carabid and uh, mindslaver. That's a pretty cool interaction. It's good, it's good yeah. stuff. Oh, and I totally planned it, right? Yeah, no, I got super lucky, but it was an awesome, awesome story. He was totally flummoxed. He's like, how do I, how do I beat you when you can't play magic? It was pretty great. Yeah, all, all the creatures in that deck, they, they all want to be the real rock star that Carabit is. <laughs> For those unaware, Matt is currently on a mission to reference really terrible songs. They're not even terrible. I just, okay. I, uh, anyway. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. I'm just com- Matt, how about- I was just complimenting Monstrous Carabid in the Living End deck. One of, one how about of, one of my best friends? He he played Living End for a long time, so it was always really fun, you know, watching, especially with Amonkhet, or Amonkhet, however you want to pronounce it, Mr. Pronunciation. Yeah, with all the new cycling cards that came out, it was it was a really fun deck to kind of watch evolve, as a lot of other decks in Commander did. And Carabid stuck around. So instead of referencing really obscure songs that the internet is not particularly a fan of, how about you tell us a little bit about some of the updates you've made since we had our podcast about uh, tuning and upgrading our decks against the data? So I gave in, I remember Joseph M. Schultz as a necromancer, <laughs> myself, himself, kind of challenged the uh, um, couple cards. Uh, Veteran Explorer was the big one that you guys kind of nitpicked on. So I, I gave in to your demands. I took it out and I put in Sakura Tribe Elder, Steve, if you will. I played a couple games with it. It was it was good. I didn't really end up casting or recasting, I should say, uh, too many times. I think in one game I recast him once and I don't know if I did in a second game because 
uh, kind of like what we talked about, well, like with Moldrifter and why I don't play Moldrifter in the deck, there's so many different creatures going on in that deck that, you know, you can only do one per turn. And so choosing if you want to ramp, if you want to play a kill spell, what you want to do for your creature that turn. So I didn't recast him a ton, but it was fine. I think, you know, give it a little more, a uh, few more goes and see how, how many times I get to recast it. I did take out Archeomancer, though. The double blue was kind of a pain in the butt. I found an Eternal Witness just laying around in all my random cards. So I put the Eternal Witness in there. That was a pretty easy swap, as you guys pointed out, and, and gave me some guff for. Um, but Archeomancer, if you do need a budget alternative just to get your spells back, it's not bad. Nice. And Dana, as I understand it, you also made some tune-ups. You did some of your homework as well. I did. I tried Manifold Insights, and I've been playing my Talran deck a little bit anyway, just um, just for no reason. So I've, I think I cast it four or five times um, since I put it in the deck now. First time didn't really count because I had a Swarm Intelligence out and uh, something else to reduce the cost of it. So basically it like wound up being six cards for one mana, so that's obviously not a good indication of how it's going to work. I don't think I like it, and I think the problem, at least in that particular deck where I'm running it, is it's relatively easy to play around. Um, I think the last time I cast it, it was relatively late in the game, and even though there were still three people, they just gave like they gave me two mana rocks and kind of insignificant cantrip, and like at that point in the game, I didn't need mana rocks, so the cantrip was the only useful spell, and I'm not sure three mana to get that cantrip was worth it. And at one point. Um, I cast it against a Dromolka player who's like, I'm just going to give you a counter spell because Dromolka can't be countered and I can't cast spells in his turn anyway, so he didn't care. So it, it just wound up being something that was kind of easy to get around, at least in that deck that I was playing. So I think I just want a draw spell in that slot. I think it's an interesting card. Maybe it would work better somewhere else, but I just found out, in the at least in that Tauran deck, it didn't quite get the job done the way I was hoping. So what you're saying is that our recommendations for Matt to tune up his deck worked, but Matt's recommendation to your deck to tune up, it, that didn't work. You know, uh, yeah, his suggestion went and made things so complicated. Oh my goodness. Okay, let's move on now to our main topic. Never again. <laughs> we're going to be... Never again, Dana. <laughs> All right. In honor of Guild of Ravnica, we're just going to be looking at some Ravnica data. The first thing that we're going to start off, this doesn't actually have anything to do much with Ravnica itself, we're actually just going to look at the most popular color pairings. This is something that we've referenced before on, I believe it was our episode 11, which is about solving the Boros problem, where we took a quick look at what the most popular color pairings are. This is two color pairings, not three or four or anything like that. And we did note in that episode that Golgari is the number one most played color combination at 11,580 decks, and that Boros was the least played of the two color combinations at 6,226. But there are, there's a lot of data that we didn't talk about in the middle there, and I just figured that we could take a look at that really quick, too. Is there anything that you guys noticed or were shocked by when you took a look at the most popular color pairings? Not really. Uh, the, the top one being Golgari, we've kind of talked about several times on the podcast. Just It's one of the most popular color combinations in general, let alone um, of all the two color pairings. So seeing that at the top wasn't really surprising, and then at the very bottom... Seeing Boros down there, we had a whole episode dedicated to busting the Boros conundrums, if you will. And um, so it wasn't really surprising to see those two at the top and the bottom. I, I tend to agree, too. With Gol and in Golgari's case in particular, Dredge is such a ridiculously strong mechanic. And it works in so many different places. I would guess that's probably part of the reason that's so far ahead of everything else. That mechanic alone makes cards 
Because in, in the case of Dredge, you're not relying on the card itself being good. Dredge makes bad cards good. So I think that kind of turns it over in a way that, you know, some Selesnya card that happens to have um, Populate or, or, or Convoke on it, if it was designed as a common, it's probably not a good enough card for EDH. But the fact that they kind of so badly misunderstood how Dredge was going to affect the game means that the, a lot of those commons and uncommons with Dredge show up in actual decks. I think what strikes me about this list, and for our listeners to be clued in, we should also go through them. So the most popular color combination is Golgari. Behind that is Azorius, actually, as the number two most played guild pair at 9,475 total Azorius decks. Behind that is Demir, 9,410. Selesnia comes in fourth. That's 9,377. And then Simic is actually in fifth place. That's one that I was pretty surprised by. I had expected Simic to be a lot higher because Simic tends to do, I think we've said it even just offhanded here on the podcast, Simic tends to do just pretty busted stuff. But really what I think this list speaks to is the diversity of available commanders in those colors. Golgari, if you want to play artifacts, you've got Glissa. If you want to do necromancy, then you've got Marin. If you want to do weird punishing life stuff, you've got the new Virtus and Gorm. Like, every time that they create a new Golgari commander, it's basically something different. It opens up a new door in those colors. Whereas whenever they make a new Boros commander, it tends to be pretty combat-focused. Whenever they create a new Rakdos commander, Rakdos is the second least popular at 6,731 total Rakdos decks. A lot of the Rakdos decks tend to be a little similar, but the ones at the top of the list tend to have a bit more diversity. You can do more things in those other colors. You know, in Demir, for example, you've got Zombie Tribal, but you've also got different ways to mill people with either Phoenix or with Lazav, for example. In Selesnia, you have a lot of ways to, you know, create tokens in even different ways among the token creators. You've got Tristani, who likes to make big tokens, but then also Reese the Redeemed, who likes to make a bunch of tiny tokens and then double them and make them go wider rather than tall. So I think that diversity is one of the things that plays a pretty big key in which guild pairs become the most popular. Um, yeah, I think that's a definitely a big part of it. And, you know, six Ravnica sets and what is it, 40 legends spread across those sets. It just gives you so many options and so many choices, too, in, in ways that other blocks really don't. It's such a just a clearly defined world, and it has so many cards that are, you know, whether it's commanders made for EDH or just like two-color cards that, because they're two colors, they were kind of allowed to be a little more powerful in standard, you know, things like Supreme Verdict or, or Abrupt Decay. That's a downside kind of in standard having to be two colors. And EDH really isn't. There's there's you know, two color decks is, is the norm versus being unusual. And yeah, it, it's just the way this, the plane is built and the sets are built. It's just so much EDH gas. Yeah, I think the, just Ravnica, the plane in general, it's a really good photograph of you know, how the color color pairs just kind of line up, what they do well with each other, what they don't do well, and then just how they, you know, especially with the enemy color pairings, I think that's probably the nice thing that they explored the most that they hadn't really done outside of maybe a little bit in a Lara block. Like the Golgari, Simic, is it uh, a lot of those guilds, they, they just got a lot more space to explore uh, kind of what they can do. That is definitely true. There are a, a lot more of the allied colored pairs uh, commanders than there are of the enemy colored pair, which is just as a part of old magic design philosophy. 
I guess that they had wanted more of those colors that are next to each other on the color wheel and have more philosophical in kind. Uh, they had decided that they wanted more of those things to cooperate. And Ravnica really did open up a lot of doors in that particular design space where they could have the card, the, the enemy colors that don't like each other, they could create more cards for them. So that is actually a pretty significant thing from Ravnica that it has opened up a lot of that design space. And we're certainly seeing the benefits now with Golgari being number one and then Simic. I mean, even if it's in fifth place, that's still respectably high. I think it's probably going back to that diversity of commanders thing. That might be why Simic is seeing you know, fifth most popularity because a lot of those commanders tend to either do one thing and that's plus one counters or they do one other thing and that's draw cards. But I mean, regardless, a lot of that design space does originate from those Ravnica sets, which is really cool to see. I was kind of surprised to see Orzhov so low. Why is that? You know, Tesa's a really good, at least original Tesa's a a really good commander. Um, Both the Ghost Council cards aren't bad. And Extort is such a good mechanic in EDH and it's so popular I, I just thought we would see more Orzhov decks in general or more Orzhov cards in general yeah I, I agree based off just the pre-con effect itself um, we had just the straight black white uh, pre-con with the uh, the dead Daxos and so seeing a pre-con color combination that we had and it's third to last that was really surprising to me you know, actually, now that you mention it, there are quite a lot of different possible options when you look at black-white as a color pair. There's a whole bunch of different life gain guys like Karlov and Eile Eternal Pilgrim, but there's also some pretty neat stuff like Daxos. I, I mean, I know that he's probably one of the more lackluster uh, experience counter commanders out there, but I'm I'm really a fan of Daxos. I like him a lot, and one of my buddies has a, a Daxos deck, and it wrecks face. It's really cool. Uh, but even beyond the life gain and the enchantment stuff, they also have things like Tesa Orzov Scion, who is just absolutely mean. I really like the pair of Ravnos and Timna that uh, came from the Commander 16 product as well, who helped revive and gain you life and draw cards. There's a lot of pretty... I, I think I'm on board with you, actually. There's a lot more happening in Orzov than I had first uh, thought before I started looking around at those commanders. Are there any other guild pairs that maybe surprise you with their positions on the list? Seeing Azorius so high was kind of weird, just because, sure, it draws cards and it plays a really good control game, but, like, you don't ramp very well in Azorius. We talk about white and blue kind of being two of the the less good uh, ramp colors, so, like, you don't get to do that very well. There isn't, like, a far and away best blue-white commander, at least that I can think of off the top of my head. So seeing it as number two was kind of weird. I think that Brago takes up a lot of that space. That's though. true. I am forgetting about Brago. And Brago's probably still in the top 10 all time of, of most played commanders. So, yeah, that, that does make sense. And Grand Arbiter does probably pull a lot of CEDH weight as well. I mean, I don't know how much of a percentage of this is CEDH decks, but that's a pretty high tier commander in CEDH. But both Yasperias aren't particularly powerhouses in commander. And I say that as someone who plays one. So, yeah, I was a little bit surprised that that for Azorius as well. And Forecast wasn't a really good mechanic at all. No. Um, either. So it's not like they have like Forecast cards lifting them up like I think Dredge kind of does with Golgari. And I guess Arrest, Arrest was the other one and Arrest isn't particularly amazing either unless you're maybe blinking um, Linvala, or excuse me, uh, Lavinia. Yeah, Lavinia, who uh, detains all of the permanents. I've actually, a buddy of mine has recently put Lavinia into his Aminatu deck because he blinks stuff in that deck. Lavinia shuts things down. That is mean. But yeah, I definitely, 
I think that that could actually speak to one of the next things that we're actually going to be talking about, and that is the most popular Ravnica set commanders. That was something that we wanted to look into. And some of those mechanics do play a pretty important part into the popularity of the uh, the different commanders that we see. So moving on to this then, let's take a look at the most popular commanders from Ravnica sets. Up first, we have Trostani from Return to Ravnica, and she's helming 1,418 decks total. And I think that that probably goes into just the sheer popularity of the Populate mechanic and the Convoke mechanic. Both of those were incredibly well-received, and Trostani herself does a whole bunch of work with both of those mechanics, in addition to just being an awesome life gain engine. That's, I, I think that you're onto something there with the, the relevance of those mechanics. Yeah, although I was still kind of surprised to see Trostani at, at the top of that list. Trostani's a, a good commander, but there's also quite a bit of competition in that slot for Selesnya. Uh, token commander, particularly with Reese Redeemed being really good. I mean, Reese is expensive as well, but I thought that would at least cut some of the decks out from underneath Tristani, but not at all. Yeah, I guess, I mean, with when you're playing tokens, like, I mean, there's got to be somebody you know, at the top of the list. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm not really surprised. And especially since we're narrowing it down to just the Ravnica plane, I guess it makes sense that Tristani is the most played because tokens is a pretty, pretty popular popular strategy so yeah it's surprising but it's not i guess and i think as well like you know this is this is commander what we like doing is the big the splashy stuff that you tend not to see in other formats because those formats the games just end so quickly trasani really rewards you for having a bunch of big stuff and that's also true of the second place commander the second most popular commander from a ravnica set also from the return to ravnica set is rakdos lord of riots He's at 1,339 decks, which is still pretty respectable. So while Trasani can populate your stuff and also gives you life equal to the toughness of the huge tokens that you make, Rakdos Lord of Riots, when he hits people, then he reduces the cost of your next creature, which means that you can play a bunch of Eldrazi basically for free, which is pretty awesome. And I think that might be a key piece to why these commanders are so popular. Yeah, I, I played a Rakdos Lord of Riots deck for a little bit, and I did just that. I, I played a bunch of like... Uh, cryptolith fragment to make everybody lose like every player lost life which reduced the cost of uh, Mildrazi by three in a multiplayer game so you're playing very big creatures for very cheap and just yeah it's just a like you look at the table and just say burn it all to the ground it's I mean it, it's fun like it was just a you know everybody loses a bunch of life and then I play this big unbeatable Eldrazi Titan and it was fun yeah it's definitely a lot and unlike Tristani, that's a really unique thing for Rakdos Lord of Riots to do. There's no other competition in those color pairs that are going to be building a similar deck. So I actually, like, had I been going into this blind and asked to guess the most popular, I probably would have picked Rakdos for that reason. Yeah, which is, is funny that Rakdos is the second most popular commander from a Ravnica set when the Rakdos guild itself is the second least popular color pair. I think... What Dana said, though, like the only real commander that competes with what Rakdos does is Animar, really. And Animar's yeah. in, in teamer colors as far as just reducing the cost of all your creatures. Rakdos does it in kind of a, you know, you do everything in one big turn as opposed to Animar. You got to protect him and he does everything over the course of the games. But though, like that's really like the only two commanders that are really doing that. I think the other possible comparison would be Neheb the Worthy. Every time that your opponents lose life on your next post-combat main phase, he's going to give you a bunch of mana for it. And that's yeah. sort of what Rakdos does as well. But yeah, I think you're right, actually. The the minimal competition there, that's something that influences numbers, which is 
also interesting compared to Tristani, who actually has direct competition to her exact strategy. That was the first Commander Showdown article that I wrote, in fact, was Tristani versus Reese the Redeemed. So it's interesting that she would, you know, still see so much popularity even when there's competition, whereas Rakdos has almost no competition, which then increases his popularity. It's interesting to look at the numbers there. Uh, moving on to some of the other most popular commanders from a Ravnica set, we've also got Grand Arbiter at 1,134 decks. He's from the Dissension set, and he's just mean. I'm. This is the one that I'm surprised to see, because Grand Arbiter, while he reduces the cost of your spells, your white and your blue spells, he increases the cost of spells for your opponents, which, yeah, tipping the scales that much definitely feels good, but it definitely also makes people want to punch you in real life, <laughs> and... Yeah, just a lot of the Grand Arbiter decks that I see, they tend to be very prisony. Your opponents can't actually play a whole bunch of magic. So it's funny to me to see that they're this popular when the actual strategy itself can be such a, a painstaking experience. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, although, again, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, I wonder if there's a chunk of CEDH decks that are Grand Arbiter, whereas if you remove them from the equation... I don't know if most of the rest of these numbers would change, and I would bet that Grand Arbiter deck drops off by quite a bit. Yeah, you know, that could be a good theory. I see that uh, one of you has put into our show notes that you're surprised by another one of the most popular commanders. So after Grand Arbiter, the fourth and fifth place uh, commanders, the most popular Ravnica commanders, are Melek and Niv-Mizzet. Both of them is it commanders. One of them lets you copy spells if you cast them from the top of your deck, which it also allows you to cast spells from the top of your deck, which is pretty cool. And then Niv-Mizzet, we all know that dragon. Both of those see a little over 1,000 decks, which is really cool. But then we've also got, beneath them, we've got Lazav from Gatecrash. He's in 1,042 decks. And I see that one of you has put a note that you're surprised at Lazav's increased popularity. Yeah, um, Lazav is a really interesting commander. I've always kind of wanted to figure out how to build a deck around him, but I can never really decide what to do with it. And I guess I wrote surprised because that's that's my note in there. Because I'm just curious what the decks look like. Because I feel like Lazav is probably good if you're, probably a solid commander if you want to build some kind of a blue-white control deck. I'm just having trouble visualizing the deck other than Let's have good stuff. Maybe that's just what it is. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Lazov is pretty interesting. He's a bit of a puzzle box. So I have actually tried my hand at making a Lazov deck. And for folks uh, who may not be as familiar with him, Lazov is a 4-mana 3-3 with Hexproof. And he can change his identity whenever an opponent's creature is put into the graveyard from anywhere, whether you destroyed it or whether you milled it. Then he becomes a copy of that creature, except that his name is still Lazov and he still has Hexproof. And he can shift again if ever he would like to do so. And it is pretty interesting to see the different ways to take Lazav, because in some cases, people would build him as a mill deck because he can turn to any creature. But that also, you know, him becoming a big creature kind of means that you probably want to hit people as well. So then milling stops being as effective of a strategy, which does put him in a really weird middle ground. Another thing that a lot of folks will do with Lazav is kind of a I play my opponent's deck type of thing, which is, I think, the direction that I took. I filled it with a bunch of things, a bunch of clone effects, basically. Because Lazav can't actually become a copy of anyone's commander. He, you know, they would just go back to the command zone, so they never hit the graveyard, and he can't become a copy of them. So that's what the clone effects were there to do. Lazav will copy their best non-commander card, and then my clones will copy everyone else's commander, so I'm effectively playing everyone else's deck against them. And I'm also stealing stuff from their deck, like with a bribery and such. So he is a really interesting and kind of a, kind of that puzzle, as, as you mentioned. He, it is... I guess, though, that makes it not so surprising that he's popular because there are different things that you can do with him. And he's also far and away the best slash most interesting of the Dimmer Commanders. 
So maybe that's probably also part of it. There's absolutely no competition, at least among the ones in Ravnica, for that slot. Yeah, you know, I think that's fair. Sirkyu Demir Lobotomist is not, you know, <laughs> winning any Ediatric competitions for popularity, for example. Now, here's an interesting data point. I thought this was kind of strange. When we look at those most popular Ravnica commanders, we can see that Tristani and Rakdos are from Return to Ravnica. Uh, Grand Arbiter is from Dissension. Melek is from, uh, let's see, Dragon's Maze. Niv-Mizzet is from uh, Guild Pact. And then Lazav is from Gatecrash. So none of the, you know, of these top commanders that we're looking at, none of them come from the very original Ravnica set. So I went looking for some data for the most popular commander from the original Ravnica set, and I was pretty surprised to see how low in popularity a bunch of those commanders are. The highest is actually Savra, the Golgari leader, and she's only got 348 decks. I mean, compared to the thousands of decks that we're seeing for some of the other popular Ravnica commanders, I was just pretty surprised by that. What do you guys think? I think in the case of Savra, there's just so much competition among the amount of good Golgari-colored commanders that she has to compete with. If you look at something like Melek, although I was kind of surprised Melek was as high as he was too, but Melek basically, if you want to build that kind of deck, you've got uh, Mizzix doing that, and that's kind of it. Maybe you have the twins from Battlebond, but for the most part, if you want to kind of do that Spellslinger deck, Melek makes complete sense if you're not going to go uh, Mizzix, whereas... What Savra does, there's a lot of Golgari commanders that kind of do a variant on that, and she just might, the problem might just be that they all do a better job. Hmm, that could be a good point. Savra has been usurped by Marin, for example. Right, yeah. Well, and even, uh, who was in the deck with Marin? The Masarek. Masarek probably does the same thing better than her. Yeah, I can see that. There's a lot of focus on sacrificing for all three of those commanders. And well, Savra's really cool. So Savra is a four mana 2-2 that says whenever you sacrifice a black creature, you can pay two life. And if you do, each other player also sacrifices a creature. And whenever you sacrifice a green creature, you can gain two life. So she can effectively be a, a, a Grave Pact or a Dictate of Erebos in your command zone, which is pretty neat. But yeah, I think you might be right. She's less good than maybe Mazarek, who enables a lot more of a an interesting strategy, or Marin, who can do a bunch of really broken necromancy. So I think that does make sense. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that, you know, the original, like, the original Ravnica block, um, that was before Commander was really a thing, period. Mm. So they weren't really designing cards with Commander in mind, whereas by the time Return to Ravnica came around, like, it was it was still very grassroots, but, like, it wasn't unheard of. Like, if you saw somebody playing this Commander format that you kind of had heard of before, you know, seen on Reddit, MTG Salvation. Um, and it probably wasn't too long after the original Commander form or the original Commander product came out um, right around that time. So, you know, it was starting to take off. Wizards probably had a little bit in the back of their mind, like, okay, if this thing takes off, we're designing cards for it at least. Whereas with the original Ravnica, they weren't designing for that. So a lot of those effects, like, you know, we, we always lament Overload, how it doesn't scale for multiplayer. It was more designed for... 60 card formats and all that stuff. Um, Overload? The, you mean the thing that Cyclonic Rift has, which is really excellent in multiplayer? Yeah, how it, it scales and is too powerful. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. It, it was overscaled. It was overscaled, yeah. They, they, I don't think yeah, they really gotcha. realized how how insane Cyclonic Rift was as a card and how, I mean, kind of, let's, let's, let's be real, it's busted. It's busted. <laughs> it's really busted. <laughs> it's pretty broke, yeah. Um, like, well, even stuff like Vandal Blast, like... If you play that in a commander game, like there's a lot of situations where you blow up ten plus permanents. Yeah, just over. Yeah, overload in general. I yeah, I think wasn't ready 
for it. The fact that Vandal Blast is the second best overload spell from that block says a lot. One shoot, I've won a bunch of games with you know an overloaded Dyna Charge even or Teleportal. Like some of those, like Mizium Mortars is a really good card. Mizium Mortars is a fantastic card. Mizium Skin, yeah, them's good. Yeah, like there's there, there's a bunch of cards like they finally like started to play around with it. Maybe a few things were too powerful. Maybe a few things weren't powerful enough, but like they at least had commander in mind with return Ravnica block, original Ravnica block, especially with, with legendaries that we're noticing they weren't really scaled to be powerful enough and they just got outclassed super quick. Yeah, I think that's true. I mentioned Circuit Demir Lobotomist, for example, who does a weird type of mill effect, but it's incredibly, just painstakingly slow and it doesn't scale well. Another really impressive commander, I think, is Tulsimir Wolfblood. Six mana, three, four, who gives your green creatures plus one, your white creatures plus one, and can create a legendary two, two green and white wolf creature named Voja. I mean, this is one of like the first cards that I saw, aside from like Lightning Helix and Watch Wolf. I mean, I saw Watch Wolf and Tulsimir Wolfblood in the same time, and that's like one of the cards that got me into playing Magic again. But Tulsimir Wolfblood has a mere 187 decks, even though he's a really cool anthem in your command zone. I think you're right. A lot of this comes to just how quickly they were outstripped by other commanders, because uh, Tulsimir, well, now you've got Trostani. Now you've got Reese, who can create more tokens and go even, even, even wider and stuff like that. So it's, it is just interesting to me that... Like the very first set that like I, I really hearken back to, the, the one that I credit for me wanting to play this game, it's like that set has very low representation with regards to the commanders available within it. And that's just a very interesting data point when compared to all of the other Ravnica sets. Because the other Ravnica sets, as we saw with those most popular Ravnica commanders, each one of them has at least one commander that shows up in more than a thousand decks. And this, one of the oldest and most cherished sets, just has very, very few. But yeah, you're right. The design the design philosophies have, have changed a lot since then. It's things like Zadek or Razia or Sisters of Stone Death, they just don't quite hold up in today's environment. Maybe because they cost so much mana as well. That <laughs> That's another pretty big piece of it. Yep. Alrighty, well now that I've said all that there is to say about these most popular commanders and my co-hosts don't disagree with me because I'm right all the time, let's move on now to Head to Head, where we're going to guess the popularity of different cards that we see on EDH Rec. Matt, would you like to start us off? I sure can. So And knock me off my pedestal a little bit because I always pretend that I'm right about everything? Well, we know that you're not right about everything because, as we've said a couple times, gambling against Joey isn't really gambling. So... Uh- I'm just trying to give the illusion that I'm in control of some degree of my life. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so, what you got for us this week? Okay, so we're going to talk about numbers on a couple cycles, some important cards for just the guilds in general, but one that we're not going to cover, so I figured we'd bring it up. So, Joey, Dana, if today was your last day, which guild gate would you say is the most played guild gate of the 10 in the commander format? You have 10 options. Hmm. The most and could played. you read out what all of the guild gates are, Matt? No, I'm kidding. Um, that's an interesting question. And as we'll see in some of the data soon, sometimes it doesn't always line up with what the actual most popular guild is. In this Correct. case, though, I think it. I think it might. So I'm going to go with Golgari Guildgate. Okay, Dana. Well, I, I'm going to guess. Man, some kind of a. Yeah, so the Mazes End decks are running all 10, so I'm trying to think, is there any other kind of weird deck that will be running more? I'm going to go with Selesnia, because I think there may be, I, I, I want to say there's some kind of a wall creature that cares about gates, and I wonder if maybe that's in the 
new um, Arcades Sabbath list, oh. maybe. I mean, that's like the only reason Fair. I could think one will be more popular than the other. Other than maybe just one color is more popular and therefore people that are running budget lists are running it. Sure. So I'm just going to, I'll just say Selesnia. Okay. Well, I will just recite all 10. I'll start from the bottom, work my way up. So Gruel Guildgate is the least played at 6,800 decks. Selesnia comes in at number nine. With wow, I'm 80, way off. Yeah, with just mm-hmm. under 8,400 decks. Boros at 8,800. Rekdos coming in at uh, seventh, yeah, 8,900 decks. Then up above that is Simic with just under 9,600. Azorius at 9,650. Demir, 97,32. In third place, Joseph's Golgari at 9,878 no. decks. Second uh-huh. place is the Orzov at 10,478. And first place, of course, by process of elimination, the Izzet Guildgate is the most played Guildgate in Commander at 10,985 decks. That is so curious. Now, do you I, happen to know why that would be? Is there a reason for that? I am not sure. And, and I went digging. I, I was kind of searching around. I don't know if it's, you know, the order in which the gates came out, whether it was Gate Crash or Return to Ravnica playing a role. I was thinking about it and... You know, just enemy colors in general. You'll you'll notice that uh, the top three were all enemy color with Izzet, Orzov, and Golgari. So I think that mm-hmm. might have a little bit to do, you know, just with uh, which land cycles are finished and which ones are unfinished. You know, we don't have battle lands, for example, in enemy colors. So those ally color guilds, they don't have to worry about that. Like Gruul and Selesnia, they have, you know, Canopy Vista um, and all that. Whereas... Those enemy color guilds, they have to kind of dig a little bit deeper to get their dual lands. So gates are probably played a little bit more in those enemy color guilds than they are in the ally color. That's an excellent observation, actually. I think you're right on the money there. Every time that we see a new cycle of lands, whether it be, you know, check lands or, or filter lands or, you know, the battle bond lands or the cycling ones from Amonkhet, every time that we see a new one, they almost always will start off with the allied colored lands rather than any enemy pairs. And so the enemy pairs have to go searching more. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I think you're definitely correct about that. Yeah, for sure. And it even goes backwards, too. If you go back to like Odyssey, those filters are just ally colors. And in the Time Spiral block, that weird set that's basically five different lands, but it's still a cycle. Those are all allied colors as well. So there's just so many more options there. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's you've nailed it. And it might even boil down just to actual fetches, too. You know, everybody talks about how uh, Scalding Turn is most expensive fetch it's coming in at about 70 bucks today you know that's a pretty penny to pay compared to windswept teeth if you're playing selesnia where you only have to pay 10 bucks so that's probably another factor to to think about when you're you know looking at that number i like it a lot we're going to move now to my head-to-head and i also have a bit of an open-ended question for you guys i'll try and narrow down some results for you one of my favorite things about ravnica is the presence of split cards it always has those little half cards that have the fun names like turn and burn or wear and tear or far and away or ready and willing so let's go with those right now 
Of the split cards, can you guess which one is the most popular? As a quick refresher, turn and burn can turn something into a 0-1, and since it has fuse, you can also deal 2 damage to a creature or player. Far and away can return a creature to its owner's hand and make someone sacrifice a creature. Wear and tear, the red-white one, can destroy an enchantment and an artifact. And then there's also ready and willing, which is the more multicolored than the other one. It is a Selesnya slash Orzov split card that can give all of your stuff indestructible and untap it, or can give all creatures you control death, touch, and lifelink. All of these have fused, so you can do both from your hand at the same time, which is really, really cool. But do you guys know which split card is the most popular from all of the Ravnica sets? I don't... I'm going to guess wear and tear, because I, I feel like it's the most just universally good card of the bunch, and no matter what deck you're running, no matter what you're trying to do, if you're in those colors, three mana to hit an artifact or enchantment, it's almost always going to be good. So I'm going to go with wear and tear. I think that's a really good guess, actually. I'm trying to think of any other possible split cards. And like I keep thinking of like Beck and Call is really bad. Breaking and Entering is really bad now. Just because how they fixed the Cascade rules with the mana costs a couple years ago. And Down and Dirty down and Dirty is pretty good because it basically has like a, a Recollect or Regrowth on one half. I forget which. Yeah. And then a, a discard on the other but I don't know if discard gets played enough. I mean, it's a, it's a good card, like, in standard, but I don't know if it... And I'm sure it's just Banath lists, but whereas wear and tear, I mean, you could just put it in any Boros deck, and it's a perfectly playable card. So. Yeah, yeah. Like, at worst, you're, you're playing a Disenchant, and I mean, that's still fine. Man, I know personally I have been blown out by Mr. Budget Bruce himself, Andrew Cummings, and his stupid turn and burn on every single creature ever. But I know that's personal bias. I want to say Fire and Ice is probably fairly high up there too, just because that's another one of those cards that was played in 60-card formats for so long that I'm sure a lot of Commander players thought, oh, well, they're playing it in this, you know, in Legacy, so let's play it in Commander too. Fire and Ice isn't a Ravnica original split card, though, so that's, that's true. one that's that I true. didn't want to oh, put in. So I mentioned mind. those four because those are the four most popular split cards, just to help oh, narrow it down because okay. there are so many options. Okay. Yeah, so it's of the four that I mentioned, Turn and Burn, Far and Away, Wear and Tear, and Ready and Willing. But yeah, Fire and Ice is also a really cool one. Another solid one. Oh, what? I just I forgot about Far and Away, too. Jeez. <laughs> they're they're really fun. That's why I like Ravnica. I, I really yeah. add a lot. And I, I know like I don't play Demir a whole lot, but I do play Far and Away if I ever have a chance, because that card is just pretty great. You, uh, you may hear about it again during my challenge, the stats, but for now... Oh, foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go... I won't be agreeable with Dana. Um, I'll say far and away, but I do think it probably is going to be his guess. You are correct about that guess. Not about the far and away guess, but about your guess that Dana would be correct, but not you. <laughs> if true. that made any sense. Yeah, that far is, and away. That's the sure bet. <laughs> that's true. Far and away is far and away, not the most popular. It's seeing play in 1,069 decks. Above it, we have turn and burn at 1,289 but eclipsing all of them by a significant margin is wear and tear at 6,136. So like more than three times as popular than the other two combined. It's uh, it's seen a lot of play, which is interesting because Boros, we know, is one of the least popular color combinations. But I think just the efficiency of that removal, it's it's hard to argue. It's one of the... I hate to sound so catty, but one of the only good Boros cards. So, of course, 
right. it's these play wars a lot of the other colors they have some just better options than than the split cards i guess all right mm-hmm. i think i'm next that you are all right so we've got there's one guild first of all see if you guys can guess this there's one guild that's had the same guild leader and guild champion in both previous sets do you guys know what guild that is isn't it Rakdos? yeah am i wrong Nope, it is not because Rakdos had a different champion. They had the same guild leader, which is Rakdos himself, but they had um, the, why can't I think of her name? Two different blood witches. Oh, like Lysolda? Yeah, Lysolda oh, okay. and was they it, had two different was it, ones. Was it the Orzov because they had Tesa in... It, it is Orzov, both Tesa. Oh, and the, and Ghost, the Ghost Council, Council. that's yeah. right. Yes. So so that was just me asking if anyone would, would know that. But So in thinking about that, I was like trying to figure out which of the two Ghost Councils was more popular? Because they're both very similar cards. Mm-hmm. They have similar casting costs, double white, double black. They both do kind of the same thing where they blink out and say, see you later, boy. So which of those two commanders do you think is more popular? The original from Dissension, which is Ghost Council of the Orzova, or the one from Return to Ravnica, which is Obzadat Ghost Council? I'm going to go with Obzadati 100%. Yeah. I, I'm actually I'm gonna windmill slam on Obzadot as well. That thing, I, I don't know. It it doesn't look like much. I mean, and maybe the people who played sixty card formats will think that I'm crazy because of what it did in the sixty card formats. But I don't know. In our format with multiple people, Obzadot kind of looks like eh, maybe this is good. But I've been on the receiving end of an Obzadot deck, and man, is it frustrating because it blinks away so that you can't touch it, and then it's back on their turn. And then it drains life from you, and it's got haste, and it hits you, and then it goes away again. And I think that that is a lot more appealing than whatever the effect of the original Ghost Council is, because I can't remember them. So let's were, let's go with Obzadat. Yeah, be, being immune to sorcery speed removal is pretty good. The original mm-hmm. one does a similar thing. When it enters the battlefield, target opponent loses a life, and it gains a life. But you have to sacrifice a creature to proc the, to proc the blink ability on it. Uh, uh, gotcha. Whereas it just automatically happens with... The Ghost Council, and you guys are correct. 525 decks versus 135. Ooh. The Ghost Council is the uh, reigning champ. Yeah, it is. That's quite a difference. But yeah, like I mentioned, it's a, uh, it's quite a beast to play against because you just it's all of the classic stuff that you think you can do. Like you know, oh, I'm gonna wrath the board. Doesn't matter. They'll be back next turn. They've avoided it. That you know, it, it makes you aware of how much of your removal is actually at sorcery speed. Okay, now let's move into one more Ravnica-related topic, and that is the most popular non-commander cards from Ravnica. Pretty obviously, before we get out and we start talking about all of these, you know, we mentioned things like Tristani and Rakdos and Lazav and all them. But then, you know, the non-commander cards, it's, you know, pretty clear that Shocklands are the most popular card from Ravnica. We know that. We also know that Signets are the most popular cards from Ravnica. Those see play everywhere we're going to move on and talk about some of the other ones that are maybe less obvious but still interesting but before we do this is one of those data points that we kind of wanted to mention and it's something that matt had alluded to when he you know did the head-to-head about the guild gates sometimes the most popular color pair does not necessarily correspond with the most popular shockland or signet or i guess vice versa the most popular signet isn't necessarily the same as the most popular color pair and this really really struck me you guys want to read off some of the weird statistics that we're seeing here about the Signets and the Shocklands and how they don't always correspond with the most popular guilds? 
Yeah, actually, I was just looking at these stats again and comparing it to the Guildgate stats. So I want to do the Shocklands real quick. So the first place most played Shockland, um, 51% is Overgrown Tomb for the Golgari. Uh, Breeding Pool for the Simic comes in at 49% of all decks. Temple Garden for the Celesnia, 48%. 47% of the Azorius are playing Hallowed Fountain. Demir have 46% of their decks with Watery Grave. Godless Shrine, the white-black um, for Orzov is 46%. Steam Vents, interestingly enough, um, comes in at 7th at 44% of Izzet decks. Uh, Blood Crypt for the Rakdos, 44% as well. Stomping Ground, also 44%. And finally, Sacred Foundry, 42% for the Lowly Boros. See, now that point does match up. So Overgrown Tomb is the most popular Shockland and Sacred Foundry is the least popular. And that does correspond with, you know, Boros is the least popular guild and Golgari is the most popular guild. But the rest are all scrambled. Yeah, I, I thought it was very interesting that Steam Vents, which is the Izzet uh, Shockland, is seventh most played in 44% of decks. Whereas the Izzet Guildgate is the most played Guildgate out of all of them. So well, I think... I think there's one similar factor that kind of that kind of topsy turvies all of this, um, and if you look at the signets, the bottom four are all green: Simic, Golgari, Gruul, and Selesnia, which means that's it's a color that has access to cultivate kind of effects or nature's lore, or whatever. So, generally speaking, I'm going to guess those players are probably running the spells that get you a land that tends to get destroyed less frequently than an actual signet. Mm-hmm. And, and in my own building, plenty of times. That's the only time I wouldn't run a Signet sometimes is in a deck that has green where I'm planning on ramping out lands versus putting mm-hmm. down rocks. So I'm guessing that's what skews that particular column. And and I guess it's kind of inverted probably in the shock lands where the top three are, are also green, which means there are lands that you can go fetch with Skyshroud Claim or you can go fetch with Nature's Lore. So I, I would guess you have a higher density of green shocks for that reason, because they're even more important in green than they are in colors that can't necessarily easily go get a duel like that. That does make sense to me. And I think it's kind of interesting that the the gruel items in both of these lists, um, are they both come in at ninth. The gruel signet comes in at 24%, um, which is just above Selesny at 23%. But also, it's ninth place in the in the Shockland territory, whereas the other three green uh, guilds, they're one, two, three. But only forty four percent of red green decks are playing Stomping Ground. Yeah, the the, the Gruel Shock is like the one one that doesn't line up with that. It's it's not mm-hmm. in the top like the signets are in the bottom four. It's not in the top four like the other three shocks are. An interesting point here that I note is that of the Shocklands, the bottom four all contain red. So that's Steam Vents, Blood Crypt, Stomping Ground, and Sacred Foundry. All four of those are the four least played Shocklands, which, I don't know, does that correspond, do you think, to the low popularity of red cards generally? When we take a look at the most popular guilds, of the bottom five, all of like the red guilds are again showing up there. So Orzov also shows up as the you know, third least popular. But aside from that, 
you've got Izzet, you've got Gruul, you've got Rakdos, and you've got Boros. So it looks to me, just looking at this data, that the Shocklands and the actual regular guild popularity do indicate a, li- a lesser popularity for the color red among color pairs. I mean, red is the sixth best color in Commander, so that kind of makes sense. <laughs> I don't even think that's true, honestly. They've had such a resurgence with excellent cards, like Disrupticorum is fantastic, Atali is amazing, the Treasure Napper is super funny. Like There are a lot of really cool red cards, Nowadays, at least, uh, but it is, yeah, it does seem like there maybe just a, a lot of the the lackluster cards that we've seen for red in the past maybe have informed this particular data point. I think so. Yeah, I mean, red does have a little bit of a resurgence coming along. I do agree with that. But I mean, really, when you look at it, um, we're talking about nine percent total. So I mean, not even one in ten decks between Sacred Foundry at forty two percent and Overgrown Tomb at fifty one percent. So I mean, it's it's a pretty tight list compared to the Signets where, you know, Izzet Signet has played almost double what Selesnya uh, Signet is. That's that's also a good point, yeah. And I, I wonder if maybe pricing factors in here a little bit as well. Sacred Foundry and Stomping Grounds are both a little bit more expensive than the average Shockland, and those are the two on the bottom, mm-hmm. whereas I'm fairly sure Overgrown Tomb is sub-$10. I know Temple Garden and Hallowed Fountain both are. But breeding breeding pool is one of the more expensive ones because it is, it's yeah. played in in so many decks. It's played in, I mean, like Scapeshift when it was playing uh, the three color version. You have Infect. You have a lot of those. Like breeding pool, I um, mean, it's pushing. Well, before they announced the reprints of Shocklands, it was pushing twenty dollars. Yeah, that that's the one one that is kind of contrary to that as well. And it's not like it's a huge difference. I mean, the difference between you know. Um, uh, Fountain, I think is like eight ish versus closing in on 20 for breeding pool. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not like a $50 difference either. True. Yeah. There's a lot of really weird data happening there, but it's pretty fun to look at. It's neat to see if we can see any patterns among them. And I think you're definitely right. The signets, the green ones are going to be obviously less popular and you'll find more popularity for the signets that provide fixing to colors that needed a little more. You know, seeing that the the shock lands tend to correspond with, you know, least popular red is also kind of interesting, but it is also just kind of fascinating that all of these don't line up in I don't know, in my amateurish expectations, I kind of would expect it that, you know, the if Golgari is the most popular, it's going to have the most popular shock land. If Azorius is second most popular, it's going to have the second most popular shock land. But that doesn't quite happen. And I think that's really cool to see. Moving on from those particular cycles, though, we should also talk about some individual non-commander cards that come from Ravnica sets. Right out the gate, one of the most <laughs> impressive cards that's <laughs> that's ever been printed and that makes Matt grumble, 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 of course, is Cyclonic Rift, oh. which isn't just one of the most popular Ravnica cards. It's one of the most popular cards, I think, second only to Soul Ring. It shows up in 71,802 decks. It's in 54% of the possible decks that could play it. And that's probably a pretty astonishing number because it really could be in 100% of the decks that, that could play it. It's just so stupid busted. This is a family show, so I'm not going to express my true feelings on Cyclonic Rift. <laughs> But yes, it, like it's, like yeah. I like I said earlier with Overload, I think they didn't realize how powerful the effect was going to be, especially in in multiplayer games like Cyclonic Rift. It's not just a you know a, a really good vapor snag type of effect and unsummon, but I mean it's it is a win condition. It's not just a utility card, and it does so much. I understand why so many people play it. Yeah, I mean the thing with Rift is. Like literally every card in this list, if I were to ask someone why it isn't in their deck, 
you could make a compelling case. Oh, I'm not running it because of this, this, and this. If you're not running running Rift, it's because you don't like it or you're being stubborn. There's no like mathematical reason to not have it in your deck. It is a ridiculous strong card that is easy to cast in any blue deck, including five colors. Well, the mathematical reason is really just your wallet, because right. I guess yeah. it's, it's now 10 like bucks, twenty dollars. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it's, it's more than that. It's like nearly twenty. Is uh, it, it's, maybe it's gone up. I haven't checked in a while. It is several dollars. Sure. It is it is it is lots of dollars. Yeah, but your but your answer is never going to be. I'm running this card instead because the ability in my deck is better. Like you can make the argument about you know, hey, Merc- I'm not running merciless eviction because I don't want to exile stuff because. I use my graveyard or whatever. There's no argument for Rift. It's just going to be a backbreaking card in any deck that can run it. Yeah, and right. just just to give listeners context of how much this card is played. So it is in set as of today, seventy one thousand eight hundred and two decks are playing Cyclonic Rift. This the next most played card from Ravnica sets is only in twenty one thousand three hundred twelve. So over three times as many decks are playing Cyclonic Rift over the second place card. That's just a, outrageous the 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 cards in slots two three four and five combined barely are in more decks than rift yeah (laughs) right and there are some patterns that i think we should note from those other cards so we'll get to them after one more observation another thing to point out i think matt this goes to how busted you keep contending that overload is and i think the data supports your your allegation there because of the cards that we're looking at here let's say we look at the top 10 cards that came from a ravnica set a lot of them are multicolored. In fact, all of them are multicolored with the exception of Vandal Blast and Cyclonic Rift. Those things are just so good that even though Ravnica's main thing being multicolored and making amazing busted multicolored spells and all of the most popular cards tend to be multicolored, Cyclonic Rift and Vandal Blast are so good that they break that particular tradition, which I think it definitely supports your theory there. But right, as Dana mentioned, there are some other really cool cards in that two, three, and four slot. So we've got Putrefy showing up in 36% of the decks that could play it, Merciless Eviction showing up in 33%, and Supreme Verdict also showing up in 33%. Really awesome multicolored cards from Ravnica sets. What strikes me is how removal-based those cards are. That and Cyclonic Rift. It seems like Ravnica provides us some really excellent removal spells that people love to take advantage of. I mean, it's just kind of a who's who of of solid removal for the format, really. I mean, there's a little bit just for every color mentioned between blue for Cyclonic Rift, and then every other color combination has to combine to equal what blue is doing. Right, and actually it continues after that because Mortify we see as uh, the sixth most popular Ravnica original card at 27%, but number five is actually uh, Boros, the only one to break the mold here, and that's probably because it protects yourself from removal. I think it's just interesting to look at this more set-specific data and see how impactful certain types of cards are, and it really appears that removal is a main thing that we're attracted to from new sets. And I think that's definitely the case with the new card that we've seen spoiled, uh, Assassin's Trophy, which is an amazing new Golgari removal spell. Like, Golgari's getting a ton of removal spells nowadays. But those removal things in multicolored, for some reason, is very attractive to us. And it's interesting to look at the data from all of these Ravnica original cards and see that that multicolored removal really, really pulls our attention. And I think part of it is because they're and I mentioned this before too, they're willing to put a little bit more power on a multicolored removal spell because you know in a standard environment, it's going to be a little more challenging to play that when you maybe only have access to a handful of dual lands. Well, in a commander deck where you have access to a whole lot more 
and it's probably a lot easier to fix your mana in a two-color deck than it's going to be in standard for the most part. A lot of that downside goes away, like being able to cast Supreme Verdict is no longer maybe the challenge it is in a standard environment, or being able to cast a Boros Charm or a Mortify or something. like That downside baked into that card's casting cost that allows it to be a little bit stronger isn't so much of a downside in Commander. Plus, removal is probably one of the most diverse things that you can have in your deck. Removal can go anywhere. You don't need a specific strategy. So, you know, whether you're playing Geist of St. Traft or Noyandar or Bruna or Brago, a Supreme Verdict is always just going to be good in each one of those decks, as opposed to some other more guild-specific cards that might actually speak more to a specific strategy. You know, a lot of multicolored cards can endorse one particular type of thing. You know, a, a Render Silent, for example, that's a counterspell, but maybe not all of those colors necessarily uh, need a counterspell or Detention Sphere. Not all of those commanders necessarily need that style of removal. I don't know. I feel like I might be talking in circles, but the point is that powerful removal can go anywhere as opposed to some other more specific types of strategy cards. Well, and we've talked about that a couple times on previous episodes too, is, you know, an easy way to kind of keep up when people are trying to buy wins with all these powerful cards is just play more answers, you know, outside of psychotic or if like putrefy, that's maybe like a dollar, uh, merciless eviction dollar two. Supreme verdict is uh, a decent amount, probably like five or six bucks now. That's just because it's played in several formats. Um, but a lot of these cards, all this removal, like it's it's all fairly cheap too. So I mean, more people can afford, you know, to put this in, in multiple decks as opposed to, you know, maybe I only have one deck that has Cyclonic Rift. Most of these are also semi semi modular, or at least allow you to do multiple things. Cyclonic Rift, you know, everyone talks about the big blowout seven mana Cyclonic Rift, but you can absolutely use Rift as a two mana targeted spell to save your butt from something that's going to kill you that turn. And I've seen it happen plenty of times. Putrefy hits two different types of permanents to remove. Merciless Eviction, you can flex to destroy four different kinds of things. Verdict isn't modular, but it has can't be countered-baked into it. Uh, Mortify has two different things. Vandal Blast has two different modes. Um, like A lot of these spells give you the flexibility to do multiple things, which is a thing EDH players love. Yeah, that's a good point. Which makes some of the other popular cards that we're seeing here pretty interesting as well i think let's see this is the seventh or eighth most popular ravnica original card that's coiling oracle in 12,777 decks 21 percent of decks that could play it are coiling oracle shows up as just a pretty generic value snake it's a two mana one one that looks at the top card puts it into play if it's a land or into your hand if it's not just really simple value there i wonder personally if rune has something to do with coiling oracle's popularity but even though this isn't a removal spell, it's just sort of a generically good, pretty small impact, but nonetheless very effective tiny creature. You know, that one's showing up as a really popular card too. Uh, behind that, we've got Desperate Shaman as the ninth most popular Ravnica original card. But that definitely goes to the thing that you were mentioning about the, the flexibility of the cards there. Because Deathrite Shaman, we all know it's the best one mana planeswalker that exists. Absolutely is. I think there's also a bit of precon effect at play here. Um... Coin Oracle mm. was in at least one, if not two, pre-con decks. We haven't got to it yet, but Prime Speaker Zagana, a little bit farther on the list, was in at least one of the pre-con decks. I think there's a degree of that for a few of these cards, but just a few of them, not most of them. 
That's a really good point. And let's move on now. You mentioned Prime Speaker Zagana. Of the most popular cards to show up in the 99 rather than in the command zone, uh, we've got two legends here that I think are pretty impressive. We've got Prime Speaker Zagana, who shows up in the 99 in 16% of decks that could play her. And we've also got Aurelia, the War Leader, who also shows up in 16% of decks that could play her. So Simic, which is one of the busted cards that people play a bunch, and uh, then Aurelia, which is one of the... You know, representing Boros, which isn't played a whole lot, but both of those tend to be really popular from Ravnica sets, even though, you know, and, and that's just, that's like in the 99, not as the commander. So that's a pretty interesting data point too. It's it's funny to me that those are the two legends that we see as the most popular ones from Ravnica that show up in a deck rather than at the front of a deck. Well, Prime Speaker Zagana is just like the most Simic, Simic card out there. I mean, you, you play a big fat creature and you draw a bunch of cards and do crazy stuff. And then Aurelia, like, I think it's more the fact that, like, what other, you know, chart topper does Boros have other than Aurelia? Like, what what's the competition there outside of maybe Gisela? Yeah, that's true. I guess I was just kind of surprised that, for example, we don't see more Savra in Golgari decks or something like that. Yeah, and I think we, well, we kind of talked about that just being commanders. I don't, I don't think Savra scales near as well as you know, just some of the other stuff you can be doing in those color combinations. It just kind of got outpaced by, you know, we mentioned all the black green legendaries that you can be playing. You also can be playing those in the 99 over Savra. Um, whereas, you know, there's either a lot less or just, like I said, Zagana is just the best of the best in that color combination. So yeah, it's pretty classic Simic. Finally, there's one more point that I want to talk about for Ravnica original cards, and this is a card that is currently showing up as the 10th most popular from Ravnica in terms of percentage. So it's in 21% of the decks that could play it, which, by the way, as you'll find out shortly, is all decks can play it. Um, it's actually showing up in 55,255 decks, which is a very, very respectable number, and that's Chromatic Lantern, which came from Return to Ravnica, and man, is that a beast. Plus, finally, it's been reprinted. So my personal prayer is that Chromatic Lantern goes from the 10th most popular card from a Ravnica set and shoots all the way up because more people need to have access to this amazing mana rock. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a fantastic card. It needed a reprint. I'm glad it's out there. It's in 55,000 decks, and that's probably not enough. Yeah, well, and it was, it was even in a pre-con, and it still needs a little more help. Yeah, it's... Oh, that's a really it's it's like playing magic on easy mode basically because all of your lands can tap for any color like that just absolutely beautiful so anyway those are some of the you know ravnica original cards that we see as the most popular and it's just really cool to you know track the different similarities that they have and dana matt i think you brought some excellent points to the table about why those cards are the most popular from these sets let's finish up now with challenging the stats we're going to take a look at some of this data and maybe challenge things that we think should be the other way around. Matt, would you like to start us off? Okay. Well, the hammer is about to come down. Uh -oh. Here we go. So my challenge to stats is a card that is being overplayed by a lot. And we've already talked about it several times throughout this episode, but Cyclonic Rift is overplayed. Not because it's not powerful. This is purely Matt, the, the senior Selesnia Morgan in his opinion. So in the deck building process, I just think everybody, you know, people talk about, you know, oh, I can play whatever I want. And it's going to be fine in Commander. I don't have to worry about buying, you know, the best of the best for, you know, 60 card formats. You know, I can express myself through deck building. 
And that is awesome. I love that about Commander. That's one of the reasons I, I enjoy playing Commander is you get to do your own thing. But then it comes to Cyclonic Rift. And as we see, 71,800 decks are playing it. 54%, more than half the people out there are playing Cyclonic Rift. And it's, and it's not because it's not an absurdly powerful card. I just think people need to express themselves a little bit more. Don't rely on, as, as the term Joey uses all the time, ad populum. What's a good finisher? Cyclonic Rift? Let's do it. Express yourselves. Like Enjoy the fact that you guys can play whatever you guys want in this format and use it as a win condition, as a utility card. And yeah, you don't have to resort to Cyclonic Rift. Yes, it is the most efficient at what it does. It's the most abusable at what it does. I, I will not say it's not an obscenely powerful card. I just, I would like to see people play more diverse win conditions. Like we always talk about, you know, oh, you're doing the boring old Perforos little kid deck. Like to me, Cyclonic Rift is what Perforos is to Dana. Um, it's just easy <laughs> mode. It's unoriginal. I would like to see just players express themselves more playing cards that they enjoy, not playing cards that are just default the best. And that's my little soapbox moment, I know. And that's that's fair. I have actually several friends who would completely be on board with you. They want to see deck building that expresses the player rather than the deck building that just has all of the good, generically good stuff. Um, for the record, though, like it's not ad populum that Cyclonic Rift is so good. Ad populum just means it's a logical fallacy where people are playing it because the masses say so, not because it's actually good. The masses are saying so in the case of Cyclonic Rift because it's so good. But I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. It is seen everywhere, and I would like to see less of it. Yeah, like if it was banned, I mean, and we've said this several times as well on the podcast, if it was banned tomorrow, no tears would be shed on my part. Yeah, I think it might be good, and this is just, like I said, it's this is all personal opinion. I think it might be good for the format, but I mean, I'm not going to tell Sheldon and company how to run a format, I have no idea. I will follow whatever rules they pass, but I wouldn't be sad to see Rift go go the way of the Dodo. Yep, you hear that, Cyclonic Rift? Matt is trying not to love you. He's figured you out. Too bad. And now if those references to songs that they were teasing me with earlier isn't obvious enough, let's move on to Dana. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you, 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 had, you had something in your mouth and it came out and I just didn't understand it. Um, uh, if everyone cared, then we would stop this conversation. Dana, what's your challenge to stats? My challenge to stats is a, another Ravnica card, Muddle the Mixture. It's currently in 11,300 decks, and for those who don't know, it's a double blue to cast, instant speed, counter target instant or sorcery spell. That alone is pretty useful. You know, I know this is kind of a, a, a meta thing, and it might be different for most people, but if... A spell gets cast that I want to counter. I feel like probably three out of four times it's an instant or a sorcery. The amount of times I am too worried about a creature or an enchantment or artifact is generally less than it is an instant or sorcery spell. Um, so as a counter spell, it's pretty useful at two mana just in general. However, it also has a keyword transmute. So for double blue and a colorless, so three mana total, you can discard Muddled Mixture and a searcher library for a card with an equal CMC to muddle, which is two mana. So that means if you don't agree with Matt Morgan and you need to end the game, you can just go grab a Cyclonic Rift with Muddle the Mixture to then cast for its overload cost and be boring and win the game. But you can also like go get Torment of Hailfire. Torment of Hailfire is, is double X, and if you need to win a game late in the game, 
and you don't need that counter spell, you can go get a win condition in the form of Tormenta Hellfire. Or you can go grab Biomass Mutation to overrun the other team with your Weenies and an Edric deck or something. It's a really, really useful card that, that does a lot of things depending on what you need for that situation. And I think even in 11,000 decks, it's probably underplayed. Definitely not one of the more popular counterspells. People tend to glide right past it in favor of things like Swan Song or the original counterspell. And yeah, I can't disagree with you at all. Muddle the Mixture, even if you're not using it to counter spells, that transmutability hits way more targets than first you think. Even if just you're getting a Lightning Greaves to protect your commander, I mean, that's also really boss. It does some excellent work. Yeah, it's a super good card. And you might recall uh, during our guest spot on Brainstorm Brewery, this was Joey's uh, breaking bulk pick as a card you probably have laying around in a pile of cards that you just don't realize. Well, really, not to get too tangential, but like... If you're digging through your bulk, if the card has transmute on it, it's worth something. Just like full stop, no mm-hmm. matter how trashy it is, even the really bad ones are worth a nickel because people run, you know, terrible transmutes in some decks just to have as many tutors as possible. Right. If you're running Diabolic Tutor to go and find one particular combo piece that you want, well, you could probably find a transmute card that's going to get you that exact same card and maybe for less mana. Exactly. Yeah, really, really cool. So it's funny that we've all picked cards that are blue this week. Speaking of Transmute, which is a Nibir mechanic, as I alluded to earlier, my challenge to stats is the split card far and away, the Demir split card. Two mana to return a creature to its owner's hand, or three mana to have target player sacrifice a creature, one half blue, one half black. Combined with Fuse, they can be super, super devastating. I've run this in that Lazav deck that I tried out. I mentioned that at the beginning of the show as well. And this thing's just so good. It's just so neat. In my mind, it's kind of a, a a Sylvan Reclamation, but for creatures. Because it ends up being a five-mana spell that gets rid of two things that I super don't like. And that's... I mean, that's just so awesome. You can bounce any creature from any player and have anyone sacrifice a creature. You can punish one guy really hard, bouncing one of their creatures and making them sacrifice the other. Or you can hit two people at the same time who both have excellent commanders out or something like that. I've just never been sorry to see this card in my hand. But And if you don't have five mana free, both of those halves oftentimes are worth casting on their own anyway. Yeah, exactly. They're both very hyper-efficient effects and... I just think that 1,069, I I don't think that's nearly enough. This is one of the better removal spells in this particular color combination, actually. I I mean, you know, you've got like your go for the throats and other effects like that in black. But when you also tack on a little bit of extra help with the bounce, I, I think this is really, really effective. One of the things that I like so much about the card Curtain's Call is not that it's got Undaunted and reduced its cost, but the fact that it hits two things, and Far and Away also hits two things. And I just think that's a really, really good thing that apparently is a little underrated right now. So I wanted to challenge the stats on that guy. Alrighty, did we have any other final thoughts about Ravnica sets as a whole? I just want to say I'm really, really looking forward to this set. I mean, I was hyped for Dominaria in the spring, and this is kind of the same thing. Getting to go to these two planes that I love so much back-to-back is such a treat. I mean, I, don't, I just don't even know what to say about it. There's, I love the worlds. I, I'm so curious about the storyline. I want to see what happens with Asperia. I want to see where the, the Tesa story continues to go. I mean, even like the the Jace in Vraska story to see how that wraps up where it left us kind of unfinished with, you know, Jace wiping her memory in Vraska, you know, <laughs> saying, hey, you, I could be your girlfriend. 
Um, I'm just really, really <laughs> interested in where that all goes. So yeah, I, I'm super, super, super hyped for this, and I yeah, can't wait to see the full spoilers. <laughs> Matt, do you have any other final thoughts that you'd like to shove? I mean, I was just going to say, into? like, when I woke up this morning, I didn't think that like the spoilers would be this cool. Like we talked about, um, Assassin's Trophy was really fun. Um, I think it's just going to be a super powerful card in general. So yeah, I think the next go around here in Ravnica is going to be really good. <laughs> Alrighty, you. I'm excited. Like I, I, I missed. Like I said, I missed the first return to Ravnica. So return to return to Ravnica. I get to, you know, fanboy over a little bit more. Yeah, and hopefully in a decade or so we return to return to return to this plane. So it'll be the return to return to return to the shadows over rise of the dawn of the war of the planet of the apes of Ravnica or something yeah. like and that. And I mean, like when you say that you're a fan of just. Ravnica is a plane, like, just remember, you're never going to be alone, so. Oh my goodness. Okay, on that cringy note, we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host for joining me, but I can't. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Uh, you can find me at Chad Kroger <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> my goodness, stop. Um, no, I am I am Matt Morgan. You can find me at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And you can find me at Avril Levine. At, wait, no. You can find me at Dana Roach on Twitter. And you can hear me once a week on my other podcast, Commander Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me hiding under a blanket trying to escape from my co-hosts. Uh, the, the nightmares are real. <laughs> for real, though, you can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle. Also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can also follow Idiotrek and the Idiotrek cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when Idiotrek gets 5,000 likes and when Idiotrek cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can contact us at idiotrekcast at gmail.com and you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on Idiotrek's community content spotlight section where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Eleven. Eleven was my count. Thank <laughs> goodness. <laughs> I didn't have that idea until you said, oh, Matt, you're just going to be looking up song titles all night, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Maybe I will.